He's one of the great figures in human history. A man who lived life to the full, who experienced in excess what most of us barely dream about. Power, wealth, pleasure, intellectual pursuits. He ruled as sole potentate over an expanding empire, respected and feared by the neighboring nations, and known even in distant lands with whom he established flourishing trade relationships. His fabulous wealth enabled him to embark on an extensive building program, culminating in one of the great wonders of the ancient world, a magnificent temple. His pursuit of pleasure was driven by a similar ambition, and his relationships with the most beautiful and aristocratic women in the world literally numbered in the hundreds. And if that were not enough, he possessed an incredible intellect that drove him to seek after knowledge and understanding, with such success that even today his name is synonymous with wisdom. His name, of course, is Solomon. And he ruled over the kingdom of Israel some 3,000 years ago. And among his lasting legacies is a little book that is in our Bibles. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And whether he wrote it or not personally, it's an evaluation at the end of his life, an assessment of all that he'd experienced and all that he'd achieved. And his conclusion is summarized in one little Hebrew word that's found 35 times in the little book of Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word is the word Hebel. And it's a difficult word to translate accurately into English. It carries the idea of something brief, insubstantial, unreliable. Hebel describes, sounds like Comrade Luft, doesn't it? But Hebel describes a breath that you breathe that dissipates, or a mist in the morning that just appears and then it's gone. Older versions of the Bible translated it with the word vanity. Our new, newer versions translate it as meaningless. Here's the conclusion then of the man who had everything. This is what he said. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, if that is the assessment of a man like Solomon, can any of us who aspire only to a fraction of what he gained and experienced, can we have any greater cause for optimism? You'd be glad to know that Ecclesiastes 1-2 isn't our verse for the year. But as another year has passed by and we enter into 2006 and all it may hold I want to ask a question this morning and I'll be very brief because we're going to come around the Lord's table in a moment the question is this is there more to life? and I want to give an answer a positive answer 
to some of you who may be asking that very question this morning. I suspect when you're younger, you immediately answer, yes, of course there is, and I'm going for it. But as you get a bit older, some of us were much older, an air of cynicism and gloom easily enters into our lives, and we wonder, well, is that it? Is there more to life? And the positive answer I want to give you is not my answer, something I can offer you to cheer you up or boost the morale of the congregation in Charlotte Chapel. No, Jesus said, there is more to life as we know it. There is a different kind of life that we can experience. And Jesus spoke about this life on many occasions recorded in the Gospels. And the term he frequently used to describe this different kind of life is the phrase, eternal life. So, this morning I want to look at what is eternal life? And how can we experience it? And we find the answer in our verse for the year, which you've already learnt by heart, but I'll put it on the screen again so that you can be reminded of it. And there are beautiful cards that have been designed for us, like this, blue ones, and you can take one and put it on your mantel shelf to remind you that there is more to life. Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, this statement is not so much a definition of what eternal life is, but rather an explanation of how eternal life is experienced or received. For example, let's suppose I was to ask a question. What is married life? No doubt all of us could come up with some kind of definition, legally. It's that state in which a husband and wife find themselves after they're joined together in matrimony. However, those of us who are married would give a different answer to the question. And the answer would be based, not in theory, but on our experience of what married life is. We would describe an experience based on a relationship. On what we know, or more precisely, who we know. Now, that's the key to the verse before us. Look more closely. The key to eternal life. Jesus says, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. We experience eternal life through relationship. Not what we know, but who we know. So let me say three simple things, and there is great profundity in this verse. The more I looked at it, the more I struggled with it, thinking, there are such depths here, how do you communicate them? Very difficult. But let me say three very simple things that you hopefully will be able to remember about this verse and about eternal life. First of all, it is a personal relationship. The Greek word translated know here, and the equivalent Hebrew word know in the Old Testament, covers far more than just knowing about or knowing facts like, do you know the way to Glasgow? Or passing a test. Do you know the date of the Battle of Hastings? Its scope is much broader, and it especially includes relationships. Do you know John Brown? In fact, it is the word used of the most intimate of human relationships possible. 
That between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. It's first used in the Bible in Genesis 4 verse 1. And our new translations don't make it very clear. If you look in the NIV, and don't need to look at it now, but it actually says, um, Adam lay with his wife, even she conceived and gave birth to Cain. The literal Hebrew is, Adam knew his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. It is the word therefore used in the most intimate human relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. But it is also the word used to describe the relationship that human beings can have with God. As Jesus describes it, it is knowing the only true God. And way back in time, it is that relationship for which we were made. It is that relationship for which Adam and Eve were made. Above all creation, they were made as the crown of God's creation, made in the image of God, made to know God, made to love God, made to experience an intimate relationship with God. Described in human terms in the Garden of Eden that they walked with God, they talked with God. There was no cloud, no breakdown, no falling out, no quarrels. It was the most intimate relationship of human beings with the eternal God. But it was also that relationship which Adam and Eve lost when they rebelled against God, turned their backs on Him. And the result was, they were not only expelled from paradise, but more crucially, they were driven from God's presence, separated from Him by their sin. A cloud came in to that wonderful relationship. And as God had warned them, on the day they disobeyed Him, death entered the world. Now, this didn't mean that the moment they ate the forbidden fruit, they dropped dead. Like some venomous snake, within ten seconds you're dead. No, the Genesis record tells us they continue to live, and in fact live very long lives. Hundreds of years. But the seeds of death were sown on that dreadful day. The life they had enjoyed, eternal life, in intimate relationship with God, was lost. And it was lost forever for each person when they physically died. But until they physically died, they lived in a state of spiritual death. Death instead of life. Separated from God, separated from the purpose for which they were made. And that's why we live lives of frustration. And in our darkest and most honest moments of despair... Because when we've got all, we still say, is that all there is? Is there anything more to life? I'm trying to look at the record, I read a record somewhere of someone, I think it was in a sports game, who won like the equivalent, I think it's American football, of the, uh, 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 won the final championship, and the crowds cheered, went back to the dressing room, he sat down, put his head in his hands and said, I've achieved it, now what? Is there anything more? It's that emptiness in our lives. Because you see, we're made to know God, we're made to love God, and yet we don't experience that. Now Jesus says, the life that you were made for, eternal life, is to know the only true God. And yet we face despair, and ultimately when all is said and done, and who knows when, and what 2006 will hold, and I don't mean to be pessimistic, at the end of it all, we face death. The Bible puts it very starkly. The wages of sin is death. 
eternal separation from God instead of eternal life with God. And so with Solomon we say, Hevel, Hevel, meaningless, meaningless. So we ask, is there more to life? And Jesus answers, yes there is. Eternal life, which we can experience through knowing the only true God. Now if that were all he said, we would continue to live in despair. Even more so for now, we know what real life is, but it is an unattainable goal, an unobtainable prize. But thankfully, that is not all that Jesus said. Look more closely again at the verse. For our verse tells us that eternal life is not just a personal relationship with the one true God, it is a particular relationship with his son Jesus Christ. Jesus says eternal life is not just knowing God, but also knowing Him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now think for a moment about what Jesus is saying here. These words of Jesus are either the height of arrogance or the hallmark of assurance. For Jesus equates knowing the only true God with knowing Him. Just as there is only one true God over against all the fakes, so Jesus claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, the special one chosen by God, appointed and anointed, sent by God. I'm the one, He said. The promised Messiah. And what was His mission? Well, even before he was born, we just celebrated it at Christmas, the angel told Joseph, the one who betrothed him, Mary, is to give birth to a son. And you have to call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And the only way in which he can save us from our sins, is by bearing our sin. Dying in our place. Dying the death we deserved. Taking our rebellion upon himself. Bearing the wrath of God that should be ours. That is why he was sent into the world. He is the man born to die. And as he prays this prayer, that moment is upon him. For he is sent to die. John 17, 1, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time, literally, in Greek, the hour has come. This is what I came for. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And the great paradox of this, and God willing, we'll look at it later in the year, the great paradox is the place of glory, of greatest glory, is the place of greatest shame. The cross. A scandal. A criminal's death. As the hymn writer puts it, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And God's people say, Hallelujah, what a Saviour. And it is through his death, therefore, that we can have life, eternal life. Jesus said, that's what I've come for. John 17, verse 2, he is sent to give life, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Is there more to life? Yes, there is. Jesus said earlier in this gospel, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10, verse 10. So how do we receive eternal life? We receive it through entering into relationship with Jesus Christ, through knowing Jesus Christ 
whom God has sent. Now, the question is, do you know Jesus? I don't mean do you know about him. Maybe you've been to Christianity Explored. It's been wonderful that so many people come into faith through that. Christianity Explored explores the claims of Jesus and what he says. And who he is and what he offers. But until you enter into a personal relationship with him, you only know about him. You don't know him. You don't enter into that intimate relationship. To take the analogy we looked at earlier of marriage. If you fall in love with someone, you get to know them better. But there comes a point where you need to make a commitment. Where you say, you are the one for me. And you stand up in a church like this. And I ask you some questions. Will you take this man? Will you take this woman? And you respond, I will. And at that point you enter into a different level of relationship. An intimate relationship. Now it's the same with becoming a Christian. It's the same with knowing Christ. Jesus says the only way that you can know the only true God is through him. Now for many people, particularly in our society and our modern day of thinking, this is the great stumbling block. People don't mind talking about spirituality. They don't mind talking about experiences of God. But when we come down to talking about Jesus and his claims, they're offended. Don Carson, the great New Testament scholar who preached for us earlier last year, earlier I say it's last year now, uh, he puts it like this in his commentary on John, which I recommend to you if you haven't got a good commentary on John. He says, because this one true God has supremely revealed himself in the person of his Son, knowledge of God cannot be divorced from knowledge of Jesus Christ. Indeed, knowledge of Jesus Christ whom God has sent is the ultimate access to the knowledge of God. Now, the truth of the claim of Jesus can only be proved in experience. For eternal life is not only a personal relationship, knowing the only true God. It is not only a particular relationship, knowing Jesus Christ in his son, but thirdly and finally, it is a present relationship, here and now. The word eternal, when you say eternal, most people think of length of time. In fact, some older translations translated it everlasting life. Life that never ends. And that is included, but eternal life means more than that. The literal phrase in the original language means life of the age to come. The Jewish people thought of life in terms of two ages, two periods. They thought of this life as the present evil age, but they looked forward to the future age when God's kingdom would be established on earth and when God's universal reign would extend over all people. The great glorious kingdom of God that would come in the future. So they had this age and the age to come. And at the beginning of his public ministry, do you remember Mark records in his gospel? Jesus announced that with his coming the kingdom of God was near, was on the doorstep and it arrived. The future is now. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So the future age has broken into the present age. And the life of the kingdom, eternal life, is not just future, but it's now. So we receive eternal life, not when we die, but here in the present. In this life, when we believe in God's Son. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus. When we turn from our rebellion and we accept Him as our Lord and Saviour. 
best known verse in the Bible puts it so clearly just think about it for a moment John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have here's the phrase again eternal life when we turn from our sin when we put our faith in Christ the chains are broken the prison doors are opened we walk free into a new life eternal life in fellowship with God the Father through God the Son made real in our experience by the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us but Jesus says until that moment we are not living the Bible describes our life as perishing living on death row under God's wrath facing his judgment so long as we continue to reject the offer of God and his son Jesus Christ so later in John 3 we read this whoever believes in the son notice the present tense has eternal life but whoever rejects the son shall not see life but God's wrath remains on him now every one of us here in this church this morning is in one of these two states you are either perishing or living so I ask you this morning at the beginning of a new year do you know Jesus Christ not know about him though that's important but you know him personally have you been as Jesus put it himself born again of the spirit of God receiving new life you have eternal life this is a relationship which begins here and now in the present but it's a growing relationship that continues throughout this life so the Apostle Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesus I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God Ephesians 3, 17-19 now sadly human relationships can often be exhausted you get to know someone you think is that all to know of them but knowing Christ is a relationship that we can never exhaust it is a growing relationship so let me ask those of you who are Christians as I ask myself as I prepared this for this year are we still growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ I don't mean are we accumulating theological facts again important though those are but what about your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ thinking back to those verses that Colin put upon you know the one way back in 2001 growing the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so five years on am I growing as a Christian? am I experiencing the love of Christ in greater measure now than I was then? you see I suspect for some of us our relationship with Christ has grown stale and cold not because of his love but because of our response to that love maybe we've got other agendas that have come in maybe like Solomon we've got projects that we want to embark on relationships that have come in the way of our relationship with Christ intellectual pursuits and other hobbies and things that have crowded out our relationship with Christ and I tell you these are not eternal life they're hebel in the end oh they're important but they're not important in eternal values so is this going to be a year when you get to know Christ better to love him more 
to experience eternal life in all its fullness. I often think of that verse I quoted, John 10 verse 10. Now this is, uh, Jesus said, I've come that you may have life, life to the full. And people look at my life and your life and they say, wow, there's a person living life to the full. Look at that joy within them, that hope, that certainty, that conviction. Yes, despite the problems in life, often through them you see it all the more clearly. That relationship with Christ for which we're made. It is a growing relationship. Now, could that not be an agenda that we set ourselves? I want to encourage you. I know people have reservations about 40 days of purpose and it's American and it's this and that and the other. But listen, if it focuses on our purpose of knowing Christ better and what we're about as a church, let's just spend 40 days. It's only 40 days of your life, friends. Let's sign up for it. Let's make of it what we can. Well, we're going to be the sons. There are 40 groups down there. There are lists. You can even look at the list and say, I want to be in that group with them and not that group with them. All right, I don't mind. Change our lives, change our church. There's nothing radical about it, there's nothing about it. It's what we've been talking about. What is our purpose? It's to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. Let's make it our goal as we begin this year. Maybe we can look back and say 2006 is a year in which my love for Christ grew even more. And my experience of the power of the Holy Spirit increased exponentially. And I experienced in great measure what it means to know Christ and love Christ. Great problem for those who like myself who have grown up with this book and these truths over all these years is you repeat the words so often that they just become words, don't they? They kind of go over your head and they kind of become blase about them. But just think about it. This is eternal life. Knowing the only true God. Jesus Christ to me sent. Let's make that our goal. And knowing Jesus, knowing God, is a relationship which is growing, but it's a relationship which will last. It's a lasting relationship. For even death cannot separate us from it. Rather, when you die, you enter into eternal life in all its fullness. Fellowship with Christ unhindered by sin and suffering. If you read the book of Revelation that in picture language describes what it's like, it's very interesting. It's just full of negatives. Says heaven will be a place where there is no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more tears, no more death, no more sea. Because the Jews thought of sea symbolically of the unpredictable, the threatening. No more sun. <laughs> Why? Because the Lamb is the light in that eternal place. This is the hope of the Christian. That's where Jesus could assure a grieving sister at the grave of her brother. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he said to her, do you believe this? And she said, well, yeah, I believe on the last day. He says, no, do you believe this now? Is this your hope now? As you face death, or the death of a loved one, is that your great hope? In the resurrection and the life. Are you enjoying eternal life? Or are you perishing? Have you discovered there's more to life? Only those who know life before death will experience life after death in all its fullness. Eternal life, to be with Christ forever. That's why the Christian can say, to be with Christ which is better by far. It's eternal life that won't be spoiled by anything else. Eternally secure. Eternal 
and everlasting life. Let me just conclude. We began with the conclusion of a man who had everything. And he said, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So, let me conclude with another true story of another man, but with a very different conclusion. He was a young man with a glittering future ahead of him, born into a wealthy and privileged family, fluent to the highest standard in three languages. He undertook postgraduate studies with the leading academic in his day. His outstanding gifts were recognized by his nation. He was promoted to membership of its governing council at a very young age and driven by fierce ambition, aided by a razor-sharp mind and unbounded energies, his prospects seemed unlimited. But then one dramatic day, everything changed. He had a life-changing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. A man who until then he despised as a heretic and a common criminal executed by crucifixion, but now he discovered to be the one true Lord of all. He abandoned his life of privilege. He forsook all the prospects that lay ahead of, it, of him for a life of privation and persecution as he travelled the world of his day proclaiming this good news about Jesus Christ. Towards the end of his life, 25 years later, after 25 hard years on the road, he assessed his losses and gains. Here are the words, the conclusion of a man who gave up everything. That's what he says. But whatever is to my profit... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to what? The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is my faith. And what are his future prospects? His ambition. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Philippians 3, 7-11. What a contrast with the man with whom we began, Solomon. This man, Paul. Solomon said, meaningless. Had everything. Paul gave up everything and he said, I just don't count it as nothing. It's rubbish compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let me ask you, which of these two men do you most closely identify with? Have you discovered that there is in Christ and through Christ alone more to life? I hope so. And I pray so. If so, you can sing our song that follows which is really a summary of those words of Paul. It's a modern